Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Well, we've made it to Revelation 8 and 9, and after our class on Wednesday night, I asked the class to pray for me as I get ready to write this, and they did. Um, I got a bunch of sweet messages throughout the week, um, so I know their prayers were with me. Uh, To be honest with you, I really wrestled whether or not to preach this at all this week. Um, This week has been tense and chaotic. Uh, For some of you, maybe it's caused real trauma and distress. So I do want to say one thing off the top about this past week, not political, theological. Revelation teaches, along with the rest of Scripture, that both our hope and our fear are to be reserved for the Lord. So that means that as Christians, we are not to place our ultimate hope in any person, in any system, in any party, in anything of this world. We can hope that they will do good things. But our ultimate hope is reserved for the Lord. And in the same way, we should not fear any person or system or party or anything of this world. Our fear is to be reserved for the Lord. Humans are capable of terrible things, for sure. But one thing no person or system can control is my eternal home. This world can take our lives one day, it surely will. But it has no say, it has no influence on the destination that God has set before us. So what happens on earth matters, and it's right for us to work to find the best possible systems and solutions for problems, but we can never, as Christians, put our ultimate hope or our fear in anything other than the Lord. Amen? All right, having said that, what we're going to read today It's going to be a stark reminder of why we put both our hope and our fear in the Lord. And that's why I'm convinced that we need to hear it um, even now. So before I begin, let me remind you of this. As we've been working our way through Revelation, we've been talking about how to read it. And I feel like we need to be constantly reminded of this simple idea. I need to be reminded every time I sit down to study it. This comes from Bruce Metzger. That's the guy I mentioned a few weeks ago that has the New Testament memorized in like a thousand languages. Uh, He said this, he says, we must remember that the objects and events seen in the vision in Revelation are not physically real. The descriptions are not descriptions of real things or of real occurrences, but are symbols of real things and real occurrences. The intention is to fix the reader's thought, not upon the symbol, but upon the idea that the symbolic language is designed to convey. Remember, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So as we hear chapter eight and nine, I want you to keep that in mind. And I also want you to keep in mind one specific word, and I'll show it to you in a minute. I'm gonna leave it up on the screen as I read these passages. Instead of you reading along to the words on the screen, I just want you to listen to John's word. And then after each section of reading, I'll say a couple words that'll help with some context and interpretation. So this is going to be one of the most difficult passages that we will read in this whole series. These images are nightmarish, but they're also familiar. 
God is ready. He is ready to reclaim all of creation. He is ready to reclaim his children. But before he does, a rebellious world gets yet another chance. So, as I read Revelation 8 and 9, I want you to keep this word in mind. But before we read, we absolutely need to pray. (laughs) So, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that we are able to share it openly and publicly. We are grateful that we are able to take it and apply it to our daily lives. So this morning, I pray that you would comfort us, that you would help us to see your mercy, your love, and your hope, even in the midst of some images that are terrifying. So God, help us to understand what you would have for us today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so this is chapter eight. I'm gonna start with verses one through five. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, remember in chapter six, we had the six seals. In chapter seven, we talked about the sealed family of God. Now the beginning of chapter eight, we finally get to the seventh seal. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand and then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, if you remember in chapter six, as the seals were broken, we heard that when the fifth seal was broken, the saints who had died from the suffering and chaos on earth, those who were the victims of the facts of life as they play out on earth, we find them protected under the altar in heaven, but they're crying out for God's justice. They're praying that God's righteous rule would finally begin, that there would be an end to all the chaos and suffering that's caused by evil. They say they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. So chapter eight is the answer to that prayer. Now the saints aren't praying for the specific terrible things that we're going to hear about in a minute. They're simply crying out for justice. And God hears their cries and he moves. But when God moves, the world as we know it is turned upside down. You see, God's justice, his righteous rule is coming. It's invading our broken world. But as righteousness and as God's holiness invades, evil and darkness will be extinguished. So the prayers of the saints, they are set on fire, they're hurled to the earth, and God's justice and judgment has begun. Now, as we continue into this next section, there are two phrases that Revelation uses often, and they describe two different groups of people. And I want you to keep these two phrases in mind, keep these two different groups in mind as you hear what comes next. The first group, they're called the inhabitants of the earth. That's what the saints were praying for, justice on the inhabitants of the earth. These are people... And this is so important. These are people who are in willful rebellion against the will of God. 
This is not a reference to people who are ignorant, to people who have not been told the good news of Jesus Christ. These are people who have made a choice. They are fighting for their broken kingdom. They're pushing against God's coming kingdom. They're setting themselves as enemies of God. Those are the inhabitants of the earth. That's how Revelation refers to them. The second group are those who were sealed by the Lamb. And as I said, that comes from chapter 7, the family of God sealed, marked, those who Jesus recognizes, their salvation is secured. We are not removed from the earth during this tribulation, but we are protected by the blood of the Lamb. So keep those in mind as we continue. This is verse 6. It says, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Deep breath. So for those of you that are familiar with the narrative of Scripture, if you're familiar with the Old Testament stories, you may start to notice some references to a very old story. The Exodus. And if you remember, in the Exodus, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. Now, in that story, there are 10 plagues sent to warn Egypt and Pharaoh not to oppose God and to let God's people go. And when those plagues came, what happened? The Nile River turned to blood and was undrinkable. And then frogs and gnats and flies covered the earth. Those were the first four plagues. The God of creation set creation against Egypt. But through it all, the tragedy of that story, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he wouldn't let God's people go. Now that passage I just read, it serves the same exact purpose. It's a warning. It's terrible, but it is a warning. Because setting yourself against God, that is choosing death over life. You are choosing death over life. And God is giving those who were choosing death over life, he's giving them a glimpse of what that is going to be like. He's giving them a taste of the suffering that they will experience if they don't turn to him. As terrible as it seems, that passage is actually mercy. Because even enemies of God are given another chance. This is not the end, it's a warning. And we know that because it's clear that God is limiting his own judgment. He's limiting the justice that he sends out. Rather than all of the earth and the sea and the sky being impacted by this, for now, it's only a third. Only a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the sun. Remember, it's not statistics, it's a symbol. It's a partial warning 
a call to repentance, another chance to acknowledge who God is and to turn to him for salvation. As terrible as it seems, it's actually mercy. Now the difficulty with these first four trumpets is that we are not protected from the effects of God's justice as he comes to reclaim creation. Both the inhabitants of the earth and those sealed by the Lamb, we do have to deal with the impact of what these first four trumpets symbolize. I have dear friends in a community in Honduras that until this year, I got to visit every year, they are right now recovering from a terrible hurricane. That's going to set that country back years. Our friends in Louisiana are deep in recovery. Californians are rebuilding from fires. The entire world is dealing with a pandemic. The whole world is impacted by these trumpets as they're playing out each and every day. When creation seems to be spinning out of control, as it seems to be, scriptures call us to turn, not to ourselves and not to false gods that promise what they can't deliver, but to turn back to the creator. So let's continue. This is verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because of the trumpet blasts that are about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant on the tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill the inhabitants of the earth, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like a woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, and that means the destroyer. Noah, will you put that first slide up again? We must remember that the objects and events seen in this vision are not physically real. All right, thanks, Noah. Even so, it is terrifying. But as terrible as it seems, it is actually mercy. I mentioned it earlier, the plagues in the Exodus story, those first four plagues impacted both the Egyptians and the Israelites both the enemies of God and the families of God. And in the same way, the first four trumpets impact all of humanity. But this warning, this fifth trumpet, 
which John tells us is also called the first of three woes, this warning is reserved for those who are in willful rebellion. The woes, the final three of the seven trumpets, they are reserved for those who have hardened their hearts and set themselves as enemies of God. Those demon locusts are told this. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree. That's what a locust would typically attack, right? These locusts are not like normal creation. But they are only to harm those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. It's meant for those who are rebelling against God. And for them, it gets worse. It said, during those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. Now, this woe is truly terrifying, but still, there is restraint and mercy. If in this woe, if these locusts were allowed to cause the death of the people that have set themselves as enemies of God, what happens? The opportunity to repent is lost. If they are allowed to die, they don't have another chance. He is practicing what Jesus preached. As horrible as it sounds, he is still loving his enemies. You see, even in their rebellion, continuing to deny the authority and power of God, refusing to put both their hope and their fear in the creator and the redeemer, as they actively work against the will of God, even then, God offers mercy. There is judgment and a warning, but it's mercy. Because he knows it is his will that there is an end to this. There will be an end to evil and to suffering. And that means that there will be a final opportunity to repent and trust in God. To trust in the God revealed to us in scripture in the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And what's truly terrifying is that one day there will be no more opportunity for repentance. But Revelation is telling us not yet. That day hasn't come yet. As hard as these chapters are to read, we still see that there is restraint on God's part, that there is mercy, and that there is hope. Now, this section also tells us something really important, and it's going to seem like a tangent, but it's not. It really matters. At the very end, it tells us the king over these demon locusts, John tells us its name. Its name is Abaddon, which in Hebrew literally means the place of death, and its name is Apollyon, which in Greek means the destroyer. So his name is Abaddon Apollyon, which literally means the destroyer from the place of death. <laughs> That's pretty gnarly. <laughs> this is the devil. This is Satan. This is the first time he's brought up. This is the one who's standing in opposition to Jesus. But remember, this is the one I've been telling you about for weeks. This is the one who's throwing a tantrum. This is the one who's furious because he's already lost. The destroyer from the place of death is lashing out because his time is almost up. And did you notice? He is called the destroyer, but on his own, he doesn't even have the power or the authority to completely destroy. God has limited his authority. He doesn't allow the destroyer to even kill. It's another example of God's restraint, this time over the power of evil and death itself. 
here's why this matters. These images are nightmarish. They are. But evil and everything that stands against God, it always looks more powerful than it really is. It has no true power on its own. One writer says it this way. He says, evil always weighs less than it looks. I love that. Evil always weighs less than it looks. It always masquerades with threats and promises that it cannot keep. And this is the very essence of temptation by the devil. When we overrate the devil's power to harm us, we have fallen for his temptation, just as we have when we trust in his luxurious promises to help us. Both are false, and both temptations have one goal, to lure us away from confidence in God's faithfulness and in God's love toward the world that he created. Okay, everybody can exhale now. Deep breath, exhale. No more readings today. Next week, we're going to finish chapter 9, and we'll read the first part of chapter 10. There is a bit of a tragic ending for some to what we've read, but then there's a challenge for us to do something about it. But we're going to get to that next week. For this week, even after such a difficult reading, what am I going to say next? So what? All right, well, first, and I'll start with the tough part, (laughs) we need to realize the weight and the awesome power of God and God's judgment, even when his judgment is restrained. He is the creator with the power and authority over all creation. We need to not minimize his power and his authority. These nightmarish images, they are given to us for a reason. They're appealing to our imagination to compel us to turn back to Jesus. And I want us to understand these images, but I don't want us to minimize or neuter them of their power. Because even the power of God's restrained judgment should lead each of us to consider what happens when there is no more opportunity for repentance. If not for ourselves, then for those that we love, for those that we work with, for a lost world that's in need of hope. Remember, I said we may be sealed and protected, our eternity may be secure, but that doesn't guarantee the same for others. Second, I hope that in this today, that you have seen evidence of God's protection over his people. The ones who were sealed by the Lamb, the family of God, we are not removed from all the suffering and hardship of this earth. We have seen that over and over, and we live that every day to one extent or another. But we are protected from the ultimate warnings and judgments. Those final warnings are not against those who are in Christ, but they are calling us to act. And again, we'll talk about that next week. Third, I hope that you see through this evidence of God's restraint in response to a sinful world. I mean, think about it from God's perspective. If you were God, thank God, but if you were God, God has every right just to wipe it out and start over. I mean, he's the creator. Why not just say that one didn't work out, let's do it again? But the Bible teaches us his identity isn't just that of a creator. He's not only the creator, 
He's also the redeemer. And redemption comes after the fall, after rebellion. And it's in the midst of that rebellion that God continues to cry out to his image bearers, asking them to come home. He's a father watching as his kids are about to do something really stupid, really dangerous, something that could cost them their lives. What would you be willing to do to stop your child from running out into a busy street? What would you be willing to do to stop anybody from running out into a busy street? It's like that picture you get partially of a man picking up a kid and throwing him in the ditch. The kid breaks his arm and cuts and scrapes himself all over. He's very injured. But what you didn't see was that he was throwing him out of the way of an oncoming car and saving his life. What would you do to save someone's life? And Revelation would say, now multiply what you would do by a thousand times a thousand, by 10,000 times 10,000. Those are the links to which God will go to call even rebellious children back to him to save them from an eternity of suffering. And finally, I hope that you can see that this is truly mercy in its purest form. And this definition is grammatically correct, but that's why it's difficult to read. <laughs> it says mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Because of his protection, because of his restraint, because of his mercy, I hope that this passage can remind us today that there truly is only one in whom we should fear and there is only one in whom we should place our hope. We've put out on our sign a series of slides. One of them says, the church is more than a building, now is our chance to prove it. And we've been doing that. Next week, we're going to hear we have more opportunities to continue to do that. But one of the other slides is a quote from John 16. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me, you will have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. We put that message on that sign for us as a reminder for comfort and hope as we come into church. And we put that message for Kingwood so that the world around us could begin to see the warnings around them and know that someone has overcome it all and that someone is standing there with open arms waiting for them to return. Next week, we're gonna hear more about the part that we play in all of that. Let's pray. Father God, give us comfort and peace as we will continue to wrestle with this and difficult passages to come. Help us to remember that these images are symbols of real things. They are not real things in and of themselves. Help us to remember what it means. That there will be an end. That there is a judgment day coming. That there is a time when those who have set themselves against you will have to make that final choice. God, I pray that a lost world will see 
that you were standing in the road begging them not to run out into the middle of the street and help us do our part. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.